Luke 24, 36 through 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you. Good morning and happy Easter to our Trinity family, to those of you who are friends and family and guests. This is my second uh, Easter here in Orange County and with Trinity, and we decided to continue the tradition that had been going on here at Trinity when I came uh, to become one of the pastors of this church. It was my goal that Easter would be our biggest party of the year. So that's why we have all this out there. I know many of you are just here for the tacos, but tacos will be a part of this sermon. You have to wait a little bit, but I'm going to weave in tacos. I don't know if that'll help. That might just make you more hungry. We've been in a sermon series called Questions That God Asks Us. We've been talking a lot about how Christianity encourages us both to ask questions and also be willing to be asked questions by God. And I think both are important. I actually think both are necessary to understand what the Christian faith is and isn't, as well as to develop a mature and a growing faith. We need to be questioners, and we need to be question regularly in our lives. This morning, I want to look at two questions. You may have caught them as you were listening to the reading, two questions that Jesus asked his disciples in this story on Easter morning. He, he asked them these two questions that the full impact and meaning of Easter might hit them, and these questions are also for us to consider the meaning and the impact of Easter. Each gospel writer, there's four gospel writers, they tell us different parts and pieces of the story of Easter morning. Luke is the only gospel writer who tells us this particular story. I think it's, it's very appropriate that he's the one who tells us this story. This is his conclusion. If you don't have your Bible open to uh, Luke 24, if you do, you'll see this is the very end, the concluding scene in the Gospel of Luke, in his story, 
But in his introduction, way back in chapter 1, in verse 4, he tells, he tells us the purpose for which he's writing the story of Jesus in the first place. He says he's writing the story of Jesus based on eyewitness accounts, based on all the research that he's done in order that anybody who reads it might have certainty about all the things they've heard about Jesus, that they might have certainty or assurance or confidence in the things they've heard about Jesus. But in the story we just read, we see the disciples' first reaction was not certainty, but instead it was doubt and it was disbelief. Verse 38, if you look there with me, why do doubts arise in your hearts? In verse 41, it says they still disbelieved. At one level, it's comforting because it's true to life. They're a lot like us. This idea of somebody rising from the dead, it's hard to grasp, it's hard to receive, it's hard to believe. And many people today, when it comes to the idea or belief in someone rising from the dead, they just, a wall goes up. That's not possible. But where this passage starts with certainty, we see as the story and the scene goes on, it ends with great conviction. It ends with the deep certainty that this is true. This part of the Easter story is about how Jesus led the disciples, he led them from uncertainty to an open mind, and from an open mind to understanding, and from an understanding, he invited them, he sent them to be a part of his mission, to extend repentance and forgiveness to the whole world. So for us, this message is for anybody along that spectrum, from uncertainty to deep conviction about the story of Easter. If you look at, at the passage again in verse 44, that's the second part of the story, that's when everything comes together for the disciples. Jesus says, these are my words. I spoke to you while I was with you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And it says he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. He said, it is there written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. We have 24 chapters in the story of Luke. It wasn't until this moment that everything came together, that everything clicked for the disciples. Jesus is saying, you didn't even understand anything I was teaching you. You didn't really understand what I was saying to you. You didn't really understand the scriptures that they had been reading, that they had been discussing and studying their entire lives until this moment, until the resurrection became real, until Easter was true. And seeing how everything was fulfilled because Jesus rose from the dead, it radically changed them from this moment. A movement was started that lasted and has lasted over 2,000 years and impacted every culture and nation on this earth. But what I want to talk about is what happened before everything clicked, before everything came together and their minds were open and they understood. What happened first? Jesus didn't just show up and start explaining everything and bringing it all together for them. What did he do first? He asked them questions. He asked them about their doubt and their disbelief. It was the questions of Jesus on Easter 
that led them to the place where they were radically changed and their lives were altered by the impact of Easter. So I want to look at those two questions this morning, questions of doubt and questions of disbelief. We'll start with looking at how Jesus addresses their questions of doubt. And we can learn three things about how Jesus leads them through doubt, about how Jesus handles doubt in general, how he handles our doubts, especially when it comes to the resurrection. The first thing that we see here is that doubts are expected. Doubts are expected. Jesus' entrance here, it's actually kind of comical, if you think about it. They're, They're in this room. It's the 11 disciples. They have some other followers of Jesus. They're all gathered. They're talking about the buzz that they've been hearing, that the tomb is empty. People are talking about seeing Jesus, and they're all gathered in this room. It says in verse 36, he stood there, and he just appeared. And he says, shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew greeting, peace, peace be to you. It's the same equivalent in our English to hello or what's up. Jesus, it says, just appeared. And he says, what's up? Hello. And they are frightened, and they are freaked out, and they are startled, and they think that they're seeing a ghost. They didn't say, Jesus, Finally, what took you so long? We were worried about you. We were waiting. You said this was going to happen. Now you're here. Let's get to business. They were totally shocked. And Jesus asked them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? It doesn't say that they said this, but probably what they wanted to say is, you're dead. How are you here? What's going on? They were full of doubts. One of the biggest misconceptions about belief in Jesus' resurrection uh, Pastor Eric C. alluded to this in his comments, is that wasn't it so much easier for them to believe back then than it is for us? They lived in a world of superstition. We live in a scientific world. That was the pre-modern world. We're in the modern world of science. But that actually isn't true. It was just as hard for them, and we see that illustrated in this story. For the Jews of the time, many of them did not believe in a resurrection at all. In the New Testament, There's a group of them called the Sadducees. They denied that that happened. They denied it was taught in the Bible. Others believed the resurrection only happened to everyone all at once at the end of history. And that was the end of the world. So one man rising from the dead in the middle of history, for them it wasn't possible, and for them it wasn't even desirable. They didn't know why they would want such a thing. It wouldn't be a draw to a Jewish, Jewish audience to invent such a story. Just a side note, as we're considering doubt, this rules out the theory of a mass hallucination when you're trying to explain, well, how did this thing get started? Did the disciples see Jesus? Is there another explanation? Maybe they all hallucinated. Well, psychologists say that an individual hallucinating doesn't hallucinate about something they don't think is possible or they've never thought about before, much less an entire group. When it comes to the claim of Easter, doubt is expected. Doubt's normal for everyone. It's been a reaction to the idea of Jesus rising from the dead since the very first Easter by his very own followers who saw him. So doubts are expected, but doubts are also questioned. Jesus doesn't say to them, notice, 
Don't doubt. Just believe. What are you doing doubting? You you just need to believe. Instead, he asks, why? Why do you doubt? He draws out their doubts to get underneath them. There's a few significant things about this. First, belief in Christianity, belief in the resurrection is not a blind faith that dismisses our doubts. Jesus is entrusting the continuation of his mission, everything he lived for, what he died for, to these 11 guys and the other people in that room. He wants them to have an examined faith. He wants them to have a reasonable faith, a faith that can be tested. So doubt is not necessarily a sign of a weak faith. It can just be a sign of an untested faith or an unexamined faith. So Jesus says, let's examine your doubts. Let's get them out there. The second thing we see about this is sometimes we think of doubt or skepticism as kind of a neutral ground. We're just noncommittal. It's a safe place to be. We're just not sure about what we think about all these claims of religions or the claims of Christianity. So we're just going to take the safe route in doubt. But the why question shows us that we can only doubt something Over here, we can only doubt this based on other things that we do not doubt. In other words, underneath our doubt is belief, belief in something. For example, we can only doubt one belief, Jesus rose from the dead. I doubt that. I'm not sure that's true. In light of another belief, and it might be, I only believe in things that are scientifically verifiable. To ask the why question is to dig underneath that belief, the cause of our doubt, and say, why? Is the idea that we can only believe something if it's scientifically verifiable, is that belief scientifically verifiable and self-evident to all people? The answer is no, it's not. It's based on evidence. It's based on the authority of others and the voices we trust, and so we have faith in that belief. So it's not a question of faith or no faith. It's a question of which faith. Because underneath every doubt, there is a belief. So to be fair, to be reasonable people, we need to doubt our doubts. We need to be skeptical about our skepticism. I want to share a story. Maybe some of you have heard it. I heard it from um, an author named Randy Newman. He says, there was once a man who thought he was dead. He was convinced he was dead, and so he declined all the invitations of his friends to come out and see him. They wanted to have dinner. He said, no, I can't. Sorry, I'm dead. I cannot join you. So his friends decided, we've got to do something about this. This is, this is crazy. We're going to convince our friend that he's wrong. So they showed him all the newspapers. They said, there's no record of your death anywhere in any of the obituaries. He said, they, just must, they must have missed it. They just kind of slipped under the radar. And so finally, one friend said, we know what we're going to do. I've got a question for you. Do dead men bleed? And he said, no, dead men don't bleed. So they got a little prick, and they pricked his finger, and sure enough, blood started coming out, a little drop of blood. And so they said, here you go, there's proof. You're alive. But instead, the man said, wow, dead men do bleed. I can't believe it. What's the point? In this story, this man doubted all the evidence that he was alive because of a belief he didn't doubt, 
that he was dead. But what if he doubted that belief? Then everything else in his life would have made more sense. It's like this with the resurrection. This is what Luke is driving home here. It's so hard to believe, the resurrection, somebody rising from the dead. But it's what makes sense of Jesus, his life, his teaching. It's what brings fulfillment to the entire message of the Bible and explains how Christianity arose and its impact on the world. When it comes to the resurrection, if we're willing to question our doubts, the evidence all leads to Jesus rising from the dead. What is the evidence? What are the reasons to believe it's true? This is just one piece of the story. There are other gospel writers, and I would encourage you to look into this. If you doubt, there's all kinds of good resources out there. But let me just share uh, from this story a few ways that Jesus not only acknowledges doubt, he not only questions it, but he also addresses it. Jesus addresses their doubts in this story by providing evidence. And so what does he say? He says, see my hands and my feet. It is I myself. He's different. He can appear seemingly anywhere he wants, but he's also the same. He said, it is, it is I myself. Touch me and see my hands and my feet, my flesh and bones. The emphasis here is they saw and they touched. And Jesus met their doubts with evidence and proof of his physical bodily resurrection. So the point here that Luke is making of this whole passage is that Jesus literally, he physically, he truly rose from the dead. Without this, Christianity isn't true. It's of no real value and has no real power. And whether we're skeptical or whether we're believers in the resurrection or we're unsure, the resurrection is a place for us to start a start to understand what it means to be a Christian, and a place for us to restart if we feel like we've gone cold in our faith to come back to the resurrection. It's a starting point. There are three main pieces of evidence that we can derive from this text that address our doubts. Let me just share three of these pieces. One, the disciples' testimony. Two, the disciples' mission. And three, the disciples' lack of interest in the tomb. We take all these together. The disciples' testimony. Here in this story and in the rest of the New Testament, we have early testimony of those who claim to be eyewitnesses, that they saw Jesus risen. No scholars doubt, no historians doubt, that the disciples of Jesus believed that they had seen them. Many question whether it was true, but nobody questions whether they believed that they had seen him risen. They had some kind of experience. Was it a legend that they created? Well, based on the timing of when these books were written, there's not enough time for a legend to develop. Is it a conspiracy? That's another option. The disciples' testimony. Secondly, the disciples' mission. No historians, no scholars question that they took up this mission that they believed Jesus had given them personally. And as they took up this mission, it always came at great loss to themselves with suffering, often at the cost of their very own lives. So can this be explained as a metaphor? That this idea and this belief in the resurrection is just a metaphorical story that gives us hope. That's probably the most widely held view today, 
But the apostles didn't metaphorically die. They didn't metaphorically leave their homes, give up their careers, and suffer. They literally gave themselves up for this mission, gaining nothing for themselves, only to tell other people and to show other people the risen Jesus, that he was alive. The last thing here is that after Easter, after this moment, nobody went back to the tomb. They were there at the beginning of this chapter. They saw it was empty, but nobody went back. Two things would have either ended or discredited the Christian movement forever. One is, if somebody produced the dead body of Jesus, that would have undercut everything. Or two, if the disciples had gone back to the tomb, if they knew where it was, if it had become a holy site in a place of veneration, then that would have discredited their belief that Jesus had risen. But the reality is nobody knows where the tomb really is. It was lost early on. This is just some of the evidence from our text. And so the question for us is what best explains all of this? What's the explanation that unifies all of these threads of evidence? I would suggest that despite its improbability, despite our doubts, the best explanation is that it's real, it's true. Questions of doubt. Jesus expected those, he questioned those, and he addressed those. Now, I want to look at questions of disbelief. Jesus had one more question in this text. In verse 41, it says, while they, were still disbelieved, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Once Jesus addressed their doubt, he moves into addressing their disbelief. This word order in the original language where it says the reason that they disbelieved was because of their joy. That's a very curious phrase. What does that mean, to disbelieve for joy? Well, questions of, of disbelief are similar but distinct from questions of doubt. Doubt is more intellectual. Disbelief is more emotional, more of a reluctance or a caution in our gut where we say it's too good to be true. We become cynical. We say, I would love for this to be true, but if it isn't, then I'm afraid I'll be let down and I'll be disappointed. Then what? So just to share an illustration, if I made an announcement at the end of the sermon and said, Easter is our biggest party of the year, we've been saving up money all year for this time. And so if you're new, if you're a guest, we have a special drawing for you. All you have to do is give us a connect card, and the drawing will be for $10 million. It's a $10 million drawing. It's a raffle. You're going to get a, a, a beach house. We, we bought a beach house in Corona Del Mar, and we're just throwing in a lifetime supply of In-N-Out. It's a California dream. We want to bless some, somebody here. Some lucky person's going to go home with the California dream. Now, you would say... Yeah, it's April Fool's Day. It's, you know, I, I get it. This is a total joke. But if I said that, you'd be thinking that's way too good to be true. But at the same time, how many of you would fill out a Connect card just in case? <laughs> that's how the disciples felt. We want this to be true. 
but it's too good to be true. And in response to their disbelief, Jesus asks, you guys got anything to eat? That's a very strange question. They're sitting there going, wait, what? What? Like food right now? Jesus, our mind is blown. Tell us what's happening. What is going on? Is this real? Is this true? Why did Jesus ask for something to eat? Well, if you know the story of Jesus a little bit, um, here's a question. What was Jesus' favorite joy in the world? What was his favorite thing to do in this earth? It was to eat. Luke tells us all about this. He was eating with people all the time. He was called a glutton and a drunkard because he was always hanging out with people and eating with them, eating with all kinds of people, people who were considered sinners, the tax collector, the legalistic people. He was always eating with people, favorite thing of his to do. And here's why I think Jesus asked this question and ate fish with them, his last meal on this earth. By eating, Jesus was not just saying, here's more proof that I'm real that he was physically and bodily risen. I think he wanted to push their joyful disbelief to its limits. That joy you feel, could it be true? He's pushing it. He's saying, this is not something for you to distrust. This is something that will lead you to the truth, to what is real. Our greatest earthly joys our deepest yearnings and longings, our treasured relationships. Jesus' eating shows that they'll carry forward, unending, into a new creation, in a resurrected physical existence. The thing we'd most wish were true, the happiest ever after, the best ending in a movie, the best ending in a book, the best sunset we've ever seen, our favorite place in all creation, Jesus is saying, by eating this food, it's infinitely better than all of that combined in the new creation with me in a glorified and resurrected body. Jesus just eats some broiled fish. It's a preview of what's to come. It's a little foretaste of the future for all those who believe in Jesus. Jesus is showing them It's true, guys. It's true. We're going to eat fish together forever. And though Jesus is giving this physical demonstration, just by this simple meal of the theology of resurrection, the Christian hope is not based simply on the immortality of the soul, but on the promise of bodily resurrection. In Revelation 22 In 21, verses 4 and 5, here's what it says. This is how it will end. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. Jesus is saying, I'm not making all new things. I'm not scrapping all the things that I made so that we can live in a completely immaterial and spiritual and non-physical reality. He's saying, I'm taking everything I made, all the good stuff, and making it new. 
free from sin, free from the curse, free from suffering. When we were talking about this passage on Monday, I was talking about it with Pastor Eric, Pastor E.C. He said, this is a great passage. You got to check out what this guy Luke Ferry said about this, uh, about Christianity, about the resurrection. Luke Ferry is a French philosopher. He wrote a book called A Brief History of Thought. So I was like, I'm going to check it out. What does Luke Ferry have to say about this? So I bought the book, and I was reading it this week. It's a great book. Uh, Luke Ferry, he's not a, a Christian, but he says the Christian idea of bodily resurrection. Throughout the book, he says, it's so tempting. It's so seductive. He says it's the most effective belief. But at the end of the book, he compares the major views of what happens when we die. The Eastern view, um, the naturalistic view, whether or not we'll be reunited with those whom we love. And here's what he says there. He says, I find the Christian proposition infinitely more tempting, except for the fact that I do not believe it. But if it were to be true, I would certainly be a taker. He's saying of all the views, this is the view we would all most want to be true. But it's too, it's too good to be true. There's a quote I want to share from C.S. Lewis. We can forward to that quote. Lewis says, If we find in ourselves a desire for which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. That thing that we feel like is too good to be true, the resurrection of Jesus, and us being united with him, resurrected, living in a new creation. It's too good not to be true. This is the world that has already begun in Jesus' resurrection. I want to close just by sharing a few implications of this. If our doubts are addressed, if we move through our disbelief and hold to the reality and the truth of a resurrection, what are the implications? How does it impact our lives? There are so many things. I just want to share three. The first is we see that Christianity is a historical faith. We have a historical faith. It stands and falls based on what has happened in history. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, in one of the earliest texts written on the resurrection, says, If Jesus wasn't raised truly and bodily, then your faith is worthless. And I am a false witness to God. So just drop it if it's not true. And this is what makes Christianity different. This is what makes Jesus completely different than all the other founders of other religions and ways of life. Because after a great founder of a religion dies, or a great movement leader dies, what do we say? We say they live on in their teaching. They live on in their example. So we follow their teaching we follow their example, and that's what we do. That's the path. That's the way of salvation. But Jesus doesn't say here, carry on my teaching and example. He said, see. He said, touch. And what did Jesus most want his disciples to see and touch? It's repeated twice here in this text. He said, see and touch my hands and my feet. Why the hands and the feet? 
Well, the most likely reason he's pointing them to his hands and feet is because this is where he was nailed to the cross, and he was still bearing the scars, even in his resurrected body. What Jesus is doing here is saying, if I'm not alive and risen and bearing the scars of the cross in the same body that bled and died, then none of it has any power, any point, or any use. But if it's true, then a new power has come into the world. The gospel is that we are not saved by what we do in following Jesus' teaching and example. We are saved by faith in what Jesus has done for us in the cross and resurrection. There's so much there for us in how we handle doubts, how we navigate doubt and disbelief in our lives of all kinds. For me, doubts have, have come in seasons, and I've needed to remember that Christianity is a historical faith. Whether we have doubts about our faith and the reasons for it or the objections to it, or my Christian friends, we might have doubts about how we feel about ourselves. We're not good enough Christians. We're failing too often and struggling too much. Is it working? And the question when we doubt for us to ask ourselves is what are we looking at? Jesus says, look outside of yourselves and see. Look outside of yourselves. Don't look to yourselves. Look to me. See the risen one with scars. This is where we look when we struggle, when we fail, when we doubt to recover our purpose. Not only is it historically true, it is more spiritually liberating than any other belief system. It's not based on what we do. It's all based on the risen one with the scars. Two more short implications. Christianity is a historical faith. It's also a holistic faith. There's a saying that some of you may have heard It's well-meaning Christians have come up with this phrase, and it goes like this. The only things that last forever, the Word of God and the souls of men. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. The resurrection shows us that that's not true. That actually the creation will last forever. And we will live in a new creation in resurrected bodies. So God cares For the soul, absolutely. But God also cares for the body, and so should we. God will rejoin these things in eternity, and we should rejoin these things in how we care for other people. Which is why ministries of compassion to the homeless, to the hurting, to the broken, fighting for justice for the oppressed, these things go hand in hand with the resurrection. We care for the soul and the body. Lastly, Christianity is a historical faith. It's a holistic faith, and it's a feasting faith. Here's where the tacos come back in. What was the first thing the early Christians did? If you go to the book of Acts, Luke wrote the book of Acts. The first thing they did, they were praying together. They, they received the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised. And Jesus, uh, Peter got up and he started proclaiming, Jesus is risen. And people started believing. And then they were like, now what? What do we do? And Acts 2.42 tells us, they gathered together to listen to the apostles' teaching and to break bread in their homes. He said, let's 
feast. Let's get together and talk about the resurrection over food. I heard somebody ask the question, why do we feast? Why do Christians feast? And uh, is there any significance to that? And there are a lot of reasons that a church might feast because it builds community. It, it welcomes others. It's a way that we show hospitality. We can show compassion on others by feeding them. All are those are good reasons why we feast. But the author said, none of those are the end goal. Why? Because feasting is the end goal. Creation, redemption, mission, it's all for the sake of enjoying the feast with Jesus. In the feast, we commune with Jesus. He is at the center of the feast. It's about relationship. It's about joy and enjoying him. Lent, which leads up to Easter, is a season of fasting, but Easter season is a season for feasting. As in every feast that we enjoy, we enjoy a little preview, a little foretaste of what's to come, which is why we save our biggest party of the year for today. The questions of Easter to our doubt, despite being so implausible, it's reasonable, it's true, and it really happened. It's rational. The questions of Easter to our disbelief, it's real. It's what awaits all who believe it's too good not to be true. The resurrection satisfies the head and the heart like nothing else. He is risen, he is risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, you expect our doubts. They don't surprise you. You know we struggle with disbelief. You know that other dreams and other visions of the future often captivate us other than the vision that you have given us, the foretaste, the preview of living in a new creation with you for eternity. I pray this morning, wherever we are, that we would be struck by the truth. What if it's true that that question would resonate in our hearts? In the deep historical reality that the tomb was empty, that you weren't there, that you were alive and you are risen today, that that historical reality would come and meet us in our hearts this morning. Bring to life faith where there is no faith. Resurrect hope where we feel hopeless. Help us bear suffering and pain with endurance and set us free from the attachment we hold on to these things that we feel like we need to have in light of the glory, in light of the beauty of the coming resurrection. We give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, in your name, your powerful name, we pray. Amen.